Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. We're here once again in the rather friendly surroundings of Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce Member Lounge. Uh, People, as usual, are busy discussing what the heartbeat of uh, Greater Manchester's business. Absolutely, it all happens here. Uh, well, talking of all happening, we've got four position papers to go over. Five, uh, five I think. Uh, hang on. What, what will ah, be a... Right, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, what, yes. What, uh, what's the other one? It's a future relationship paper. Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, so, before we get into any of that, thank you, of course, for uh, uh, supporting us either on iTunes or following us on Twitter. Um, please keep those reviews coming in. They are very, very important. Before we get into the really nitty-gritty of the position papers, why don't we talk about some other issues which have cropped up this week, namely these... Um, are they reports coming out, of, um, um, coming out of the government or are they independent regarding trade? The trade, the, the trade papers that have been in the headlines, um, there's been two. So there was one... I think on Friday last week, which came from the Institute of Economic Affairs, uh, and then there was a, a, a follow-up uh, uh, paper. It wasn't actually a paper, the second one, because the paper is yet to be released, but we had kind of an introduction in the broad headlines from it, yeah. um, which came from a group called Economists for Free Trade, uh, previously known as Economists for Brexit. Um, <laughs> so, uh, are these guys neutral? Uh, <laughs> In, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, but both the papers um, basically focus on the idea of what they call unilateral free trade, yeah. which is essentially uh, us not bothering with trade agreements and instead just reducing all of our tariffs um, on, on imports to zero. And the argument that they make is that by, this is the best way for us to essentially look after the economy and kind of get out there and start trading with the world post-Brexit. Um, but both of the papers are essentially based on very traditional libertarian-leaning kind of economic theory around free trade and tariffs and really kind of don't match up with the reality of modern trade. Now, can I just uh, clarify this for the listeners? When you say don't match up with the realities of modern trade, that's because the notion of tariffs is almost 
kind of redundant now in some circles because they think the more important restrictions of trade are regulations rather than out-and-out tariffs. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think maybe this, these two papers coming out have made me rethink slightly the wording that I would use here because I've, I've in the past may, may have said that tariffs are largely irrelevant, but they're not irrelevant, it's just that there are substantially more gains to be made through other measures like uh, regulatory harmonisation and things like that. So some tariffs exist for very, very good reasons. They exist um, you know, to look after industries in particular countries. Um, they may exist as part of wider trade agreements where uh, other barriers, non-tariff barriers have been brought down. Um, so tar- tariffs are, you know, I would say, are shrinking in terms of their importance. Um, but what these papers miss is the, the whole other aspect of it, which is the non-tariff barrier side of things. Mm-hmm. So the problem of uh, regulations, uh, standards, uh, border checks, all these kind of things. Um, these are the things which make up most of what modern trade deals are all about. Um, and there are a number of just outright errors in, in both of the papers, um, you know, particularly around things like what most favoured nation status means in the WTO. What it tells us, what does most favoured nation status mean? Um, in, in a nutshell, um, it's, it's very badly named, uh, first of all. In a nutshell, what it means is that under WTO rules, you are not allowed to give a tariff concession or a discriminatory tariff to one country. So, for example, if we leave the EU with no trade deal and then we want to reduce the tariff that we trade with the EU with down to zero, we also have to reduce that tariff down to zero for everybody else. What it also means uh, for the EU is that if they wanted to trade with us on a zero tariff basis, technically they would also have to drop their common external tariff down to zero for everybody else. This only applies though outside of a free trade agreement. So free trade agreements can kind of supersede this arrangement. Right. But both of the papers make kind of pretty easy errors um, around this around this area, suggesting that essentially if we do leave without a deal, um, it will be very very easy for both sides to continue to trade on basically the same basis that they do now. Um, but in reality, things really really aren't that simple. And um, you know the the policy of what they call unilateral free trade. Um, would have significant implications for particular sectors of our, of our economy, like manufacturing and agriculture, um, for example, which, uh, in, in, in particular, the Economist of Free Trade paper, um, which is written by a guy called Patrick Minford primarily, um, in his earlier works, it's a it's a it's an accepted conclusion that some of our industries will be absolutely, absolutely decimated by this policy. Um, so it's really, it, it's, it's a kind of thought which we have seen before and generally what tends to happen is papers putting this kind of message come out and are routinely torn apart by all kinds of analysts and economists and then you know, it tends to go quiet and then six months later we see a new one which is putting out essentially the same message. And um, I, I think it's particularly dangerous because um, the media tends to report on this stuff without a great deal of scrutiny. Um, whereby, if you follow the right people on Twitter, people who understand how trade works, you know they'll they'll tell you that this stuff is uh, is really really dangerous and shouldn't be taken shouldn't be taken seriously. So, Christian, do you disagree with the uh, stance of Mr. Milford that we'll be multiple times richer once we leave the EU? Yeah, broadly, yes, is kind of the short is the short answer to that. But it's it's all about how it works. So. They, the con- this concept of declaring unilateral free trade kind of goes back to some of the, you know, the basic lessons 
the developed world learnt about trade economics in the 18th and 19th century and you know, the, the father of all this kind of trade economics is a chap called Ricardo. Um, and one of that big lessons is essentially you want the countries who can produce the highest quality products the best to be the ones who win out. And that kind of comes down to a really fundamental concept in economics where whilst there are producers, there are there's agriculture, manufacturers, the only purpose of producing anything is for a consumer to, some, to at the end of the chain, consume it. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the, the usual rule in economics is you, look, you must look at the world through the consumer's eyes. It's always about their, their ability to purchase best value product. Don't forget trade quality and price have a trade-off that we talk about best yeah. value. Um, so, in what you know, in many ways, and in pure theoretical terms, the concept of lowering your external tariffs to zero is potentially really good news for your consumers. Because yes, but there is there are external tariffs um, which we use now through the EU framework, which will be placing 10, 20, and upwards kind of tariffs on goods which are imported into the UK. Clearly, if those tariffs weren't there and we imported from different countries without them, then consumers could buy those goods for less money. Consumer wins, what's not to like? The big challenge, of course, is how do other countries do it more cheaply than us? And what impact might that have on the UK industries or the EU industries really within the, within the EU that currently do that? So it might be that you can get your widget made much more cheaply in China whilst they're exploiting slave labour, uh, whilst they are, they're not paying staff properly, very low environmental concerns on generational electricity and manufacture of the product, all of that kind of stuff. So of course they can undercut a Western firm that, as it were, is doing all of those things by modern Western standards. And so to try and level that market, that's one of the reasons tariffs can be used. So to price in what we call externalities. There's a concept that the production of that good somewhere else actually has... Uh, causes damage or problems for other people, and that mm. pro- that's not reflecting the price. So you use tariffs to try and level all of that market out. It's also used, as Alex said, for kind of protection of homegrown industries. So actually, we want to look after and nurture. Trying to give an example, you know, new offshore wind farming in the EU, big industry for us. Other countries are starting to enter that market. They can do it for ten percent cheaper. So if we slap on a twenty percent tariff, that means we're still competitive. Yeah. But, of course, if you open all of these industries up to full global unilateral free trade, what you potentially do is completely eradicate them. So if we were to open up, if we were to go for zero agricultural, that's an easy one, um, food imports, what you would essentially do is wipe out UK farming because there is no way that a massive developed nation with all of the additional costs the developed nation has can compete with sub-Saharan Africa, South America, Southeast I mean, isn't, Asia. Isn't the obvious argument here that... Of course, China or whoever it is is going to use uh, you know, slave labour or lack environmental concerns or, for instance, you know, um, the sub-Saharan African countries are going to be able to out, um, uh, uh, out-repeat us because they're not exposed to, these de- to our developed markets. And once they are exposed to our developed markets, then surely standards across the board will start to even out as in a burgeoning mi- mi- middle class, so on and so forth. Exactly, and, the, and the, you're absolutely right. And that is essentially what bodies like the WTO and the big regulatory bodies of the world, which is primarily the USA and the EU, are working to achieve. I mean, you, you, this is a long, long... Sl- again, this comes back to a lot of the stuff we talked about with the Brexit yeah. debate previously. This is a long, slow transition. What is really hard is to make a step change in that. 
Yeah. Because actually, yes, you do want to encourage China in, you do want to encourage developed nations in. There's already a policy through the WTO of which the EU is uh, is engaged, whose name escapes it, but it's essentially least developed nation uh, concept. So tariffs have been lowered for food producers in uh, in uh, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, particularly to get things like coffee beans in at lower rates, because that helps their own local economy. Them being stronger gives us a market to sell more developed goods back to. Everyone over time wins. Yes. But to make a simple switch in that in one go would have huge ramifications. And you know what I don't know. I've not read the paper in detail from Minford, but is he costing in the additional economic development funding, the well, additional benefit funding that the UK would require as you know towns? Essentially, it's, it's almost like the you know what happened in the big deindustrialisation of the northern towns in the seventies and eighties. You turn off the one industry on which they're reliant. Congratulations, you have saved the subsidy to the National Coal Board, which we were spending in the 70s. What you've now created is a 30-year welfare dependency. Yeah. That's much more expensive. Than the sub- it's not the subsidy shouldn't come away and you shouldn't move it, but it's got to be a managed transition process. Well, well just, just staying on that note, um, one of the issues with, with the Minford paper is, is that we don't have the paper yet. Um, mm. we've, actually only just got, we've actually only just got an, in, uh, an introduction, really, and, and like the broad headlines. So the, I think, £135 billion number that apparently the economy is going to be better off by. We don't actually have the... Cal- is that per we, year? Is that like We don't actually have years? the calculations or the exact model uh, that sits behind that, but it's going to be based on the same model which Minford has used before, which I think is called the, the Liverpool model. Um, and again, has been routinely torn apart by all sorts of people um, every other time that he's used it. Um, but uh, yeah, all, all the things that Christian was mentioning are totally right. And it's, it's a kind of an, another aspect of trade agreements, which potentially people like us don't talk of enough, is that trade agreements nowadays are big strategic undertakings and it's not just tariffs or non-tariff barriers or getting goods across borders. There are geopolitical and security and human rights issues all woven into them. Um, and this is why they're so complicated and they say take so long to develop. Um, and you get something like the IEA or the Minford paper, which is based on basically pure economics out of a textbook that just doesn't take into account any of these things. And so there are a whole number of just real kind of errors and oversights that are made. Uh, in the Minford paper, for, for example, um, he believes that price is essentially the only thing that matters when buying a good. Um, so quality doesn't come into it, for example, or you might not want to buy something from a certain company because of, of their ethics or something yeah. like that. It takes no account of anything like that. Um, he takes no account of what we call the gravity model in economics, which is that countries will tend to trade with the countries close to them um, rather than the countries that are on the other side of the world. He assumes, he assumes it's just as easy for us to trade with Australia as it is for us to trade with Germany, which is demonstrably not the case. We, we have data which can prove it. Um, the Minford paper too, um, well, his last paper anyway, where we can see the model, takes account of uh, the the fall of the pound and how it impacts uh, in, on boosting our exports, but doesn't uh, take into account the, the import side of things. So uh, it will also raise import prices for our producers. Um, it's just basically, it, it, it's it's all stemming from, from theory, and there are all sorts of ways in which it comes, it comes at odds with reality, and these these things just aren't take, taken into account. And it is hard. We see lots of commentators doing this around trade. And I mean, the other thing with you know, both the IEA paper and the and the Minford one is there there isn't a trade economist on any of the boards. Who, they're all macro economists. They're all macro or monetary. Um, so there's no trade economist. So the big challenge here is, of course, it's in the stuff we talked about in those very early podcasts. The UK hasn't done trade for 40 years since it joined the EU. The way trade is done globally has changed immeasurably over that period, and really rapidly, really recently. 
So whilst you know the UK is a founding member of GATT, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which came out in the 70s, that organisation essentially became the WTO uh, in the 1990s. But since then, and since 2000 particularly, there have been a number of rounds um, of discussion from the WTO about essentially <coughs> easing trade facilitation, making trade between countries and globally generally um, much more successful, much cheaper and much easier. And that's been through colossal regulatory alignment and you know, Alex has talked in detail before about the you know the big global bodies who were driving regulation and the EU certainly the EU is one of those uh, but it also is taking instruction from bodies higher up the chain. Um, we're seeing uh, generally agreements on tariffs being lowered constantly uh, across the world. Well, the average tariff globally now is about three percent. Um, so I said there are there are sectors where they matter a lot. Mostly they don't matter that much. Now, certainly, some of the guys at the IEA will push back and say, "Well, look, which is it that matters to you? Because you're telling me that tariffs don't matter very much, and that unilateral trade is insane." Where do you strike the balance? And of course, the point is there are sectors where tariffs are still a very big issue. There are sectors where regulatory alignment is still a very big issue, and these those would be, be you know would be significantly impacted. Okay, well, uh, I think we've we've um, we've covered a paper which isn't out yet. <laughs> yep. Let's go over to these position papers. So, I think what we'll do is we will talk about the judicial, the judicial dispute stuff. Yeah, that's exactly. the latest one. Yeah, because yeah. that, that is the relationship, future relationship paper. Exactly. Then we can sort of kind of lump customs, Northern Ireland, and goods into the next bit. Sure. Okay. So, go on then. Who wants to lead off with this? Go on, Alex. You want to kick off and. Um, well, we were told uh, a few weeks ago that we were going to be getting 12 position papers over the next few months. Um, so we saw the two big first ones last week, which were on future customs arrangements in the Irish border. And then we've seen three smaller ones since then. Mm-hmm. Um, one which was on goods... Already in the already in the market at the point of Brexit. That's yes, that so that goods, goods already circulating in the single market um, before the point of Brexit, and what what happens regarding those? And then we've had two on kind of the legal side of things, which I really struggle with. Um, so one was on. Uh, confidentiality of uh, of documents We're between the UK, right, yeah, yeah. You, between the UK and the EU during our membership period, uh, uh, and what happens with those afterwards. And then there was another one which we've had today, which was on uh, dispute settlement, essentially, um, and that is the one that has been termed a future relationship paper rather than a position paper. And I think of all of them, the one which came out today on dispute settlement and the future kind of uh, judicial oversight um, in that in that regard has been received quite well. Um, but the fact that it's called a future relationship paper is quite telling because really what it, all it does is lays out all of the options available to us and gives no real detail as to which one we might want to go for. But there are lots of encouraging things in there. Um, loads and loads of mentions of uh, EFTA and the use of the EFTA court to get around the whole ECJ mm-hmm. red line. Um, and really just loads and loads of options put on the table, um, all of which sound kind of reasonable. Um, for, it's, for, it's, I think it's the, best, it's the best paper we've seen, uh, I think, in terms of a genuine pragmatic positioning e- from government. Even though it doesn't actually give us a roadmap of where we want to go, it's just... A collection of options. It's a collection of options, and that's kind of we'll, we'll just dwell on this for just for just for a few seconds. Please. It's kind of something we've seen in common with all of the UK's papers 
since we started is if you, you know, I encourage listeners to go and do this and we're going to compile them all actually on the last week in Brexit uh, website shortly all the position papers that the EU have released so far and all the ones the UK government have seen so far and the EU ones are I mean they're utter models of legal clarity in terms of we want what we want is A, B, C, D, E we will not accept you know P, Q, J and all yeah. the rest of it all the ones the UK government have put out have been kind of, well, there are a number of things we could look at and there are some of these things we might want to consider. And there's no actual, there's no point at which the UK government takes a clear stance on what it wants. It takes a clear stance on the high-level stuff, so, you know, we'll, so you said we'll come to the Northern Ireland stuff later, but as an example, we want an absolutely frictionless border between Ireland. That firm statement. How you achieve that? No detail. Yeah. Um, this one we want red line the red line is we must be outside of uh, jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice how you do that well there's a sort of a few different things which I guess is going to for me I would say is going to make the, the negotiations a little bit harder on our part because we've kind of allowed ourselves to be fairly washy already going up against a very big organisation uh, that's bound by its own treaties will have less flexibility that has been crystal clear about what it wants to see um, so but yeah, not all of that's going to you know, uh, uh, notwithstanding, it's it's a good paper that's pragmatic and it shows I think that that government is softening uh, its position over the past few months. Can I just go on a tangent there between uh, sorry on the statement you made about the UK not knowing what it wants and the EU drawing some quite clear guidelines as to what mm-hmm. it wants. We went around three of the talks and. If the EU decide to allow for trade talks to trade talks ha- to happen in parallel to, to everything mm. else, is that a sign that the UK strategy is actually working? Because I wouldn't say there's been sufficient progress on anything yet in order to to allow trade talks. No, and and I think my my opinion will be the same. And we know categorically from the European Commissioner Michel Barnier that that is their position too. There yeah. has not been anywhere near enough progress. Um, they set out right at the beginning that for them there were three things to be handled first citizens rights uh, Northern Ireland border and financial settlement only when sufficient progress that's the phrase sufficient progress well, it, has been it was made. it originally was once they're settled we will talk about it and then it's changed to sufficient position. progress is where they're happy so people talk about we've got to come to the bill we don't the EU's not asking for a number it's asking for an agreement on the model by which the bill will be calculated yeah um we said, you know, if you remember, David Davis said that he was going to have the row of the summer <laughs> over that uh, because he wanted trade talks to be to run in parallel. He rode back on that in day one of the first round of negotiations. So both the UK and the EU have essentially agreed to this this ordering of negotiations, which is kind of odd when we're now publishing, when the, the UK government is now flooding the market with position papers for phase two, but actually we've still not seen the UK's position papers ironing out everything that needs to happen in phase one and there's kind of messaging from the government that almost it hopes that by talking about phase two somehow the EU might change its mind but it seems unlikely to be honest (coughs) yeah I mean my view on this is they've already I mean there's clearly softening on softening on both sides and Although I wouldn't say there's much softening from the EU side would you not? I I I think that you know this was a very early shift when they said sufficient progress on the first round, um, there's not really been any shift since then. You know, they're holding. Diff- and the other thing as well is, don't forget, there's much less flexibility for Michel Barnier and his team than there is for 
our government. So, so, so government asked for permission. Exactly, because nego- it's our government doing the negotiations on our side. Obviously, government can define its own position. Michel Barnier is under strict instructions and signed off red lines from both the European Council and the European Parliament. So if he wants to move outside of those red lines, he's going to have to go back to those two bodies for approval. So or he's got to get creative with the language to make sure it, it yeah, fits within his red lines. Exactly. Which is kind of where I think that this will go. But, okay, so let's just move over to these position papers. Now, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit here and tell you we did talk about this last week, but because for many technical reasons I didn't record this properly, we have to do it again. <laughs> so... The, probably the most important and most substantial of the position papers was the Northern Ireland border paper. Um, I think the best way to approach this is first just set out what Ireland's stance is and the current agreement between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland. Okay, so I guess two, two major things I guess probably to dwell on because uh, there are two big treaties that cover, cover what happens there. Number one is what's called the Common Travel Area. Uh, That's an old treaty that dates back, I think, to the 40s or 50s after the establishment of Ireland as a a republic. It essentially allows for... Sorry, it's a treaty between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, and it essentially allows for completely free, passportless, borderless travel for both Republic of Ireland citizens and United Kingdom citizens between the two countries, between the two states. Um, so, you know, if you want to hop on the ferry and go over to Dublin, you can do that. You don't need to take a passport. The ferry company might demand one for identification purposes, but there's no legal border between yeah. those two. Uh, and that's exactly reciprocal agreements are exactly the same for Irish citizens coming to the UK. The second one, of course, is in the 1970s. Both the UK and the Republic of Ireland became members of the European Community and have advanced at identical stages throughout all of the treaties uh, as they've been updated since then to today. So we're both members of the European Union. We're both members of, of, of everything that that now encompasses, the single market particularly, common commercial policy, customs union, and a variety of other things. Crucially, we are both not signatories to Schengen. Is one of the, it is now rolled up within the EU treaties, but Schengen is the treaty which enables passportless checks within the European Union itself. So if you're travelling from France to Germany, there is no passport check. Of course, we all know when we go on holiday, we are passport checked. That's not an EU issue, that's an us, we're not part of Schengen. Ireland wanted to sign to Schengen, but essentially found that there is a big conflict between Schengen and the common travel area. How do you handle the issue of people moving across the Northern Ireland border if they say, we're happy to not have transport checks, but the UK is. So we stayed in tandem on that. So essentially, UK and Republic of Ireland form like a little entity of its own outside Schengen um, within the EU. So the big challenge now as we leave the European Union is how do we maintain that open border? Yeah. Because uh, essentially the UK extracts itself, so there becomes a hard border. The, the, U, the EU's external border will run along the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That ordinarily should mean full-blown customs checks and everything that goes with a normal external border. For well, It is the desire of the UK government, the Republic of Ireland government and the EU that that does not happen for... I guess what are the relatively obvious issues that there are big political tensions over that border already. So, right, so I mean, this is just so immensely complicated, isn't it? Because there is good, not only is there no border at the moment, it is explicit permi- um, a, a, the explicit position 
from Ireland that they want no form of no cameras, no technology, absolutely. Nothing. It, it is, is a just completely open board. Yeah, and that yeah. is not just the people as we've spoken about, but, all, but also for trade. Yep, mm. exactly. Yeah, so it's people and goods. Yeah, and all of the you know, all of the freedoms as it were within the, that are currently within the single market. Um, that is a big, and it is yet to be seen whether it is even a possible task. So um, I, I just can't see, I, and I don't. I'm sure I'm not the only one. How this can proceed? Just say if nothing happens and we crash out of the EU on the on the supposed date that we're meant to crash out. What happens at border? Quite exactly. Now the EU said something in the last 24 hours about that. But Alex, is it worth just touching on the the two major because op- the UK government's paper on this? Gives us two main options about how it thinks it can, uh, yes. how it thinks it can handle this. Yes, um, uh, there, there are two broad options given. Um, one is heavily reliant upon technology, essentially, um, to track goods uh, as they go across the border. So we, we've seen this at other other borders where there are cameras and basically everything is just walked through, but is automatically tracked. So this would be in Norway that the. the that this happens, I believe. Is it Norway and Sweden or someone? The, the border between Norway and Sweden happens like this because, of course, Norway is not a member of the customs union. The big thing that's always worth caveating that statement because Norway is not a member of the EU, it's not yep. in the customs union, but it is a participant in the single market through its membership of the EEA. Uh, so that allows lots of things to happen much more easily because the regulatory systems are aligned. Yeah, yeah, so there's the one solution which is based on technology, uh, but we've never seen that technology um, handle the you know the type of stuff which goes across that particular border. So it's kind of unprecedented that that would be a solution. When you say type of stuff, do you mean stuff or volume? I, I mean volume. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Volume and frequency. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the big thing is because it's an integrated market, goods in the same supply chain routinely cross that. You know, the, the, the usual example is go and talk to the Guinness factory and they will say yeah. Guinness being manufactured crosses that border four times. Plus the process of being made. Yeah, the, exactly. other, the other big issue with the technology-based solution is that all that infrastructure would need to be built, and we are currently not building it, and it would be an enormous undertaking, costing a lot of money. Um, and another interesting tidbit which I discovered was that under EU law, all of the infrastructure would have to be on the Irish side of the border, not ours. For what reason? Because it would be an external border of the, of the EU. And it's the EU's position that member states have to police their own external borders. Member states police their own, but also, yeah, this is the EU... This is, it's not just a national... And this, this is where a lot of the, the, the slip-ups in this kind of conversation make. People say, oh, it's, just, it's not just a national border. It is a customs union border. Mm. Yeah. And that has a very, very different impact. So the, so the, you know, the border between the Republic of Ireland and Ireland it would not be comparable to the border between America and Canada or America and Mexico or other kind of concepts there. There are other rules going on. There's a big NAFTA agreement, of course, which tries to facilitate some of those checks, not without stopping everything. You know, it doesn't manage on everything, but those help. That is not the case. It is a full-blown... It is the world's biggest customs union board. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, just the, the politics behind this is even more complicated than the actual... Um, the natural technicalities behind trade but you could say well maybe Northern Ireland will do some sort of deal with the Republic of Ireland to make it sort of separate entity but then people have literally died to make sure that that does not happen yes exactly yeah. and this is where this is this is this would be difficult in non-politically tenuous yeah. uh, tenuous areas in Northern Ireland Ireland this, you know, I've said this before and I, it sounds very blasé I don't think it was the case this has this kind of issue has caused civil war before Yes. Yeah. You know, it is of that sort of magnitude. Yeah. Uh, um, 
So we're talking about the two options, and the second one is a bit more vague to me. It's based on some kind of waiver system, I believe. Yeah. So the idea is this. Sorry, go on. Is this the idea of, of the UK being an agent of the EU? Well, that's kind of the first one, really. Yeah, which yeah. is the technological one. So goods can come into the into Northern Ireland, and then the UK will uh, will uti- will put in place all of the EU's external tariff arrangements and customs arrangements on its behalf but then track goods to their final destination. Right. And if they stay in the UK, then UK duties and UK VAT apply. If they don't and they go on into the EU, then they don't. Nothing like that has ever been attempted before, and it is seriously questionable whether you could ever do it. And the opportunities for evasion uh, in all of that scheme are, are huge. There are big problems overall. I mean, I, I think there are kind of philosophical almost issues with the whole approach that's being taken by these papers because I mean the, the customs union paper and the Irish the Irish border paper that you could you could have done them in one because they're, they're both so kind of codependent on, on one another um, but the issue with both of them is that what we are asking for essentially is some new bespoke massively expensive you know untested new kind of arrangement to come into place that affords us all of the benefits of the customs union and the single market without us being in either of them. Sounds, which, like, sounds ideal. Which, is, which, which, first of all, is something that the EU has said they won't allow. Um, they, they've set out as, a, as, a, as an absolute red line. Um, and then we're saying that we want there to be no border. Ireland wants there to be no border. The EU wants there to be no border. But we've heard from Brussels today that essentially what they've said is they don't see how that's possible. And I... And I, I tend to agree but I don't see how it's possible if we're outside the single single market and the customs union for there to be no border whatsoever another issue is that if we do manage to get one of these systems in place um, it leaves us absolutely no wiggle room in terms of future divergence from the EU's regulations and systems because they might, we might be able to get a, a scenario in place where there is no border, but at the moment, which we might want to change our tariffs or change our regulations or something like that, all of a sudden you've got the whole issue of a backdoor to the EU coming coming into play again. Yeah. And a backdoor to the EU is something which they absolutely will not allow, especially in terms of trade and people moving across borders. Do... This is completely hypothetical. Not, not hypothetical, but it's almost impossible for you, for you to answer. But do the EU value the integrity of the single market and the customs union more highly than they value the future of Ireland? That's a, that's a horrible question. Um, but it touches on something else I, I think was, we were just chatting about earlier before this, is within the negotiation strategies, there's been lots of shouts about it's a negotiation, both sides have room to give, you know, EU will set out its red lines, we'll set out our red lines, those red lines will change to orange and yellow and be rubbed out and redrawn you know, over the, over the negotiation period. But I think there's an important bit that's missing here, which, or an important interpretation of that which is missing, which kind of hits on this point, and it's not the either-or. The red lines we are drawing, we are currently drawing for essentially purely political, potentially economic reasons. Yeah. We've decided to set a red line that we must be outside ECJ jurisdiction and varying others. A lot of the EU red lines, particularly around things like single market participation, around external tariffs and customs unions, are part of at least their own internal treaties, but are also subject to international treaties and WTO jurisdiction. So there are some of the there are some things which the EU are saying it is, that, are, that they are its own red lines, which which to be reasonable, it is not possible for them to move. Yeah. 
um, at least not without complete redrafting, not only of EU treaties, but with one eye to global regulation. So one of the things that came out you know, when the, the EU published its customs paper and its Northern Ireland border paper together, trying to say, look, these two things are connected. We can't deal with Northern Ireland separately from dealing with customs because they're intertwined. One of the positions that's come back from the EU side is saying, well, look, actually, there is a real risk here. If the EU sets a precedent as part of its negotiation deal with the EU to exit to treat one of the one third country, the UK, differently in terms of land border access, A, it may well be in breach of WTO rules and the standards of global customs union, uh, and it potentially opens itself up to trade dispute allegations from every other bordering country. So there are so it needs to any deal for it on the Northern Ireland border has to be handled completely separately from the future relationship, because otherwise it potentially exposes itself into into global law. All right. So first of all, is there any obvious solution to this which is incredibly unpalatable to some to someone? So what I mean by that is something which we don't think will happen, but something which could actually solve it. For instance, um, Ireland. Um, also coming out of the um, out of the EU might solve this, or it Northern would. Ireland joining yeah. Ireland would solve yeah. this. Both of those things would would essentially solve that problem. It doesn't solve the UK island of Ireland problem, yeah, because uh, you still have that sort of passage of trade. And don't forget, over half of Ireland's trade is with the UK. Yeah, uh, so there's there are some big issues there. Both of those theoretically though, would solve the border problem. Um, whether either of those are politically achievable. Or, des- uh, is a, or desirable or anything else. The other one, of course, is the good old EAF line. Uh, and us taking that option would essentially, as we have said more times than I think I would care yeah. to remember, yeah, it is, makes it, a lot of all this go away. It seems to be a running theme in this podcast that we go down dead ends over and over again only to find that the solution is after. Yeah, yeah it, is, it really is. Uh, and just, just going back to the, the, the position papers, I mean, I, I just want to stress the point that but neither of the papers give any real sense of gain from doing this. Essentially what's happening is we're squirming trying to figure out a way in which we can keep everything exactly the same as it is. Mm. But in doing so, we're also, we're also tying ourselves to the EU in such a way that we might not be able to do what we want in the future. And for me, it's, it's, the, it's the worst of both worlds, almost, the, 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 route, the particular route that we're going down. Um, I mean, we've said that the EU would, would solve it, but with, with the solutions that the government's currently proposing, we, we gain nothing and we almost remove all possibility of this gaining something in the future. Um, and so, of course, it goes back to the question of as, as, uh, why are we doing this? And neither of these papers kind of put forward any real reasons as to why we want to go down this route rather than remaining in the EEA. Um, and the other kind of slightly... I don't know if it's dangerous. I don't know. If maybe maybe it is good good game playing. Is that some people have picked up on on this uh, in in the sense that we've said, look, we want everything to stay exactly the same, and here are some proposed solutions in order to make that happen. And that now that puts the onus on the EU and Ireland, um, so that if this doesn't happen and things you know screw up, that it's not our fault. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think that that's that's a bit of a dangerous um, way to think about this, but. You could also say that it's potentially some way in which our government is trying to find a bit of leverage. Um, and again, I you, agree with that. I yeah. completely agree with that bit. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, I think the worry for, yeah, I guess, for, for our point of view, is it, it might be that in this area, and the, you know, the EU's comment about if you're outside the single union, single market, and the customs union, it is a 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our border is the point is the area we might be trying to find leverage in is one of the EU's immovable lines for all sorts of multilateral and international treaty rules. Mm. In which case, actually, if that's the case, it's potentially completely wasted effort. Well, something something has got something has got to happen because someone 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 somewhere down the line has got to break a treaty or bend a rule. Or, or or row back, and it seems like a very easy win for the government. This because they simply do nothing, and they win. Well, potentially, I mean, but it's a it's an incredibly high risk strategy. Yeah, um, but I, I mean, what is there anything else in the government's in the UK government's arsenal, which is potentially as powerful as the Northern Ireland border? I don't think there is. No, no, and, and in fact, actually, if we go back to the the Lancaster House speech that Theresa May made in in January this year, and her twelve points, we I think we said almost immediately point four, I think it is, uh, which is protect the protect the Northern Ireland Irish border is the single hardest ask of everything we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, Primarily because we're saying we want to be outside the single market and outside the customs union. It's squaring those two things uh, that is that is an unbelievably difficult and possibly impossible ask. Well, we've got two sides with almost unlimited budgets, with almost unlimited access to brain power. So I'm going to be fascinated to see exactly how this one oh, yeah. uh, is rolled out. Um, the Northern Ireland border kind of links into the into the customs. What about goods in circulation? What what's the <laughs> what is the current position with this? Okay, do you want to watch a lie ever go? You'll be best at that. Okay, apparently, we'll see. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. So the, the issue here, of course, is what do we do? Because lots of people have talked about the... It's easy for... Let, sorry, winding back a bit. Lots of people on the Brexit side have said, look, it's really easy for the UK EU to strike some kind of free trade deal, to some kind of deal, because we have regulatory alignment. Of course, actually, we have 100% regulatory alignment. No two countries ever go into trying to crack a, a trade deal in that position. Isn't they're normally massively far apart. So, therefore, it's really easy. And in many ways, it is. The challenge for the EU, who is the dominant partner and the regulatory setting body in all of this point, is what happens in the future. It's all right to say you'll be regulatory aligned at day one. What will that look like on day two, but never mind two, five, ten, twenty years down the road. So the the, the challenges for getting a, a good trade deal away will have to cover all of that stuff, and then we hit the ECJ red lines that we've set up and all of that kind of thing. So this was about, actually, what do we do about goods that are already on the market? So 
you know, a manufacturer in the UK pops its good out of the production line on the day before we leave the EU, it then goes off into circulation. Yeah. What do we do about that? And the UK's position is that should still be perfectly valid for resale throughout the EU. It was made when we remember, it was made when we were regulatory compliant, therefore it must be regulatory compliant. End of story. That's position number one of the first stage. Second position is what do you do about stuff that's pushed onto the single market after Brexit, but whose um, design essentially was signed off whilst we were still a member? So the great example, the biggest and easiest example here is is cars being made by UK manufacturers. Uh, So actually... That you, we might be, you know, Nissan might be churning for three, four, five years after we leave cars into the marketplace that were designed, scrutinised, and signed off to EU regs before we left. The UK's position, therefore, is therefore that's fine. Those should just be able to circulate because we kind of know they're still there. And then there's a the third stage, of course, is what you do for certification of goods designed and produced after we leave into the EU afterwards. And the UK, the government's position then is there should be authorities in the UK who are codified to EU rules and they can check the standards. It's fine. All of the things I've said, of course, work both ways for EU manufacturers seeking access to uh, to the UK. Um, I think where this is probably going to run into into difficulties, we've proposed kind of either UK bodies or joint EU UK bodies to oversee. This, I think, is where the EU will push back and say this has to be the ECJ because the ECJ, European Court of Justice, is the court which rules by which rules over single market rules uh, and regulations. No other body can ever be in a position um, to to certify those. Now, I think that this is one of the areas I think where there'll probably be some room for manoeuvre. I think the first case of the UK government, so stuff that's actually been physically made beforehand won't be a problem I think the EU will, will slip that through without any problem you'll need that will probably have to be time limited because you need to rely for the fact that you c- EU regs will move on so something which is compliant today might not be compliant in three years time so yeah. you, for things which might stay on the market for that kind of period I think that might be um, that be an issue but I think the EU will go through that the second one I think will probably is something the EU would probably be happy to to concede on so cars made in 2020 to 2018 designs and certs are fine the, th- uh, the third one I, I can't see the EU standing essentially essentially we be- this is the EU's treaty line you know the UK becomes a third country uh, it is outside of uh, the rules and regulations these things can be cracked with free trade deals they can be cracked with mutual recognition agreements they can be cracked with customs agreements uh, but all of those things would tie our regulatory bodies two aspects of the of the EU over the long term. And That's forget, not necessarily a bad thing, but it'll be a, it'll be a political tension for our government to work. And don't forget after, of course. And of course after. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, just quickly linking this back to one of the previous papers, is there anything in the um, future relationship paper, if that's if I've got mm-hmm. that terminology right, which talks about the ECJ? Uh, doing something like part regulation, maybe regulation over things which go into the single market. Well, that's really the one that's come back today, Alex. Uh, I, I, my honest answer is I haven't had enough time yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to, to figure that out. Um, there, there are ton, there are tons of options put forward in the paper. Um, 
but it, it seems to be still a red line. I think the Theresa May made a statement just recently that That's the, right. the Supreme Court will will be the ultimate arbiter of UK uh, UK law and uh, and dispute stuff. But I think there's I think there's two aspects to the paper we've seen today. So it deals with dispute resolution. So let, there will be an agreement of some sort, whether it's small, large, comprehensive, or deep, between the UK and the EU. After we leave. The UK government's position is there should be an independent body spun up to arbitrate over disputes between the UK and the EU in that scenario. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, I think that's where we'll end up. The EU's starting negotiating position is that with the ECJ. I think it's perfectly reasonable to see that that becomes a bilateral body, um, which is essentially what you have between the EU and Canada in CETA, and it's what you have in most bilateral trade agreements. That I think that will be easily solved. Um, the harder bit... Um, in that is about whether the ECJ can be removed from uh, from jurisdiction over current issues. Uh, We might not want to over um, you know, overseeing human rights but actually single market it's you know, it, that's actually a fairly sensible thing for it to oversee. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's it. So I think there's, you know, the, the, the commentary I've seen, as we've said, this paper's only been out, what, just under four hours at, at, at the time of recording. Um, but from the from the quick anal- you know analysis from the people who are in the know and tracking this as deeply, I think it's broadly welcome as a pretty good paper. Mm-hmm. We've floated EFTA to be, there's a concept of EFTA or an EFTA-like body being able to sit in uh, sit in that position. Um, that, you know, getting into EFTA is not without its difficulties, but it's there is it at least already exists and treaties are already in place. Um, the, yes, the, the challenge will be. I think the UK government also wants ECJ out on issues which are essentially of ECJ control. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is single market. Some of the single market aspects that is over things like human rights, which kind of get they get ruled through the ECHR and it's a separate body. But a lot yeah. of that stuff's kind of been subsumed into some of those structures over the years. I think that will be harder uh, for the UK government to pull off. Now, um, this is more of a um, internal question rather than anything else. But now you've seen some of the position papers, and not just uh, uh, Greater Manchester Chamber, but you know um, chambers of, of, of another country. Will you guys be taking a position as to which way you want the government to go now, and when would you expect that um, that opinion opinion to be formed? It's a really good question, uh, and I think I think you understand for for delicate political reasons, it's not it's something we've we've strayed away from, or at least we've we've, we've actively taken the decision not to take that call yet. Yeah. Um, the gut reaction is it's probably still a little bit early. Um, there they are. We've been very clear on things like citizens' rights. That's one of the early stages, uh, where for us it's actually we say the EU position is broadly very sensible. Just everything everyone has got now lock that in place for those who are here and then it shifts after that because it's just the it's it's one of those things in all of this debate it's just get it out of the way it's not there are a number of things you might want to go to the wall to and fighting for the Northern Ireland border issue is one long term customs integration how you do it. these are chunky since right stuff it actually it's, it's just don't worry about it you know it's migra- inward and migration and migration between the UK and the EU is going to continue in volume for a long time don't worry about it. I might, I might just add to finish off. Whilst we're having discussions about whether we might come out at a later date with a with a more solid position, 
I think avid listeners of the podcast could probably figure out what it might be. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So go back and listen to a few other episodes if you're wondering what it might be. Yeah, that's it. So I think it will come, actually. Um, as I, can't, I cannot speak at all on behalf of other chambers uh, across the network, nor of, nor of British chambers. They will form their own opinions in, in due course. Um, but I think I would. My gut reaction is, if everything hits the timetables as it's as it's meant to be, so we do actually get through these first three major issues by the autumn, so the October round starts to talk about trade. Then I would have thought October, November, December, we're probably in a position where we start seriously shaping nope. um, you know, and trying to influence government in the direction it takes, and you potentially then be much more outspoken about. You're trying to take path B. We actually think that is harmful and incorrect, and this is a better way of doing it. Okay, and um, one uh, one last one, which is now we've finally seen some position, position papers and we're kind of getting a feel for what the, the UK government is wanting to do. Are you, are you filled with more confidence, less confidence, or are you based exactly where you were before? I, I, I'd say I'm probably about where I was before. Yeah. Because, because there, there, are some, there are some aspects of it which potentially give me a little bit of hope, like all the mentions of EFTA and things like that. But then the, the customs paper and the Irish border paper potentially throw me in the other direction. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it, it's a, a difficulty just with the entire approach that we're taking to this thing uh, rather than any specific details. No, I, th- I think that's a really good summary. Um, for me, the same. My confidence level is low. It's, it's, hi- it's definitely higher than it was in the sense that, the, and particularly today's paper actually on, on jurisdiction, sends a, a message that government's internal position is changing pretty rapidly. Um, I'm not yet sure it's changing substantively, but the, you know, the, you know, Theresa May's speech this morning talking about you know, direct jurisdiction, we know legally that means nothing, but there's, there's a preparation for a change of tone mm. going on in there. The concept of EFTA or independent court jurisdiction is an indication of softer tone. As Alex says, though, the customs of the NI ones are really hard, but that they are really hard subject, subjects in, a, in an ideal world. Um, they're unbelievably difficult in this one. Um, I think, But I think still, whilst more comfortable, my, my gut reaction is still pretty low, uh, in the sense there is a very, very long way to go for government to have clearly sent a message that it understands what it's going through and some of the issues. You know, I mean, the whole transition stuff at the moment, we're not talking about a transition deal. What we're tra- what it appears they're talking about is how do we extend the precise status quo until we get to the point of talking about long-term stuff. That is not a transition arrangement. <laughs> you know, and it's essentially, it's a case of, we've told the public we're leaving in 2019, how do we make, how, you know, what we ideally like to do is boot that back to 2022, but we can't get away with it, so how do we kind of cover that gap? Uh, and that's not a mature approach to be taken. Excellent, right. Well, let's leave today's podcast there. Uh, before we go, anything happening exciting in the um, in the chamber this week? Uh, I think this week, no. It's all we're kind of a bit quieter with it being August. Not much external stuff. It's it's all eyes for our huge construction summit north on the thirteenth and fourteenth of September at University of Salford. That's where our focus is for now. Excellent. Uh, we can find you boys on Twitter. Where I'm at GMCC underscore Alex at GMCC underscore Christian, and I may as well throw my own in, which is at JBeardmore. So until next week, when we'll come back to you with even more high quality Brexit chat. Goodbye.